First Peter chapter number two. First Peter chapter two. Might have to dance around with the sun here, huh? This morning. We'll see. We got some new faces in here. That's good to see. And make sure we uh, welcome everyone afterwards to the service. And you are welcome. I'm Pastor Ben. In case I haven't met you yet, and I would love to after the service. First Peter chapter two. We're studying the book of First Peter. We're going to look at First Peter two eleven through twelve this morning. These two verses transition us into really the main body of Peter's letter. Are you going to mind if I stand this close? Hope not, because I'm going to. Here we go. And uh, these two verses really are the introduction to the main body of what Peter wants to get across here in this letter to these believers. And if you have been with us for the past number of weeks, you've been studying First Peter with us and recognized kind of the, the path we've been taking. We started in chapter 1, and really in verses 3 through 12, if you look at that, you can see that's really speaking about the great salvation that God has given to us, and so he describes that salvation. And then in verses 13 through chapter 2, verse 3, he talks about how do you personally apply that? How do you live a holy life, and how do you love your brothers? And then, then last the last few weeks, we've been speaking about chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, about how to live that as a church. How do you live the salvation God has given to you as a church? And, and now he transitions into how do you live out the salvation that God has given to you in the world in which we live? How do we live out salvation in this world that is full of, of suffering and opposition to God? Our world is broken, isn't it? Marriages, many marriages are struggling and, and broken. Many people face employment where they're unemployed or they're facing difficulty in employment. And so there's a lot of suffering taking place in our world. And our world also opposes God and opposes his message. And we see that today with, uh, in America, don't we, with churches. In fact, we're praying for churches in California and some in other states who are trying to gather who are restricted from gathering because the government has put that upon them and they're now fighting them and restricting them. And, and there's, an, there's a, an oppression that the world puts upon the church to try to unfairly target and, and to shut them down. And we see this most prevalently, honestly, around the world. We're not really facing what many uh, Christians and churches in the rest of the world are facing. But definitely we see this happening and so, so the question is, when you, when you suffer like that, when you face personal or public opposition because you're a Christian, how do you, how do you function in that? How does salvation affect us in an oppressive world? And that's actually what Peter wanted to communicate to these people, is, is how they can live out their salvation within the world that they're living. In fact, if you look in chapter 2, after this introduction in verse 13, he goes into speaking about government. And then in verse 18, he goes and speaks about masters and servants. And then chapter 3, verse 1, speaks about wives and husbands. And so you see all these different groups. And he says, how do you live out your salvation within these different groups? These were people who were, who were suffering. And so this whole body of this letter, which starts really chapter 2, verse 11, and goes through chapter 4, verse 11, is the next part of our series that we're going to be going through. So you, should, you might have a handout. We 
gave some handouts when we came in, so you can get that out if you want to. If not, feel free to stand up and go to the back and get one off the table back there. But you can see on the handout that our sermon series is titled, How to Glorify God with Your Life While You Suffer. So over the next period of weeks, we're going to be speaking about this. How do you glorify God with your life while you suffer? And honestly, isn't it amazing how God brings us each week to the text and the texts that are actually applicable to what we need for our time and our day? And I think the main idea we're going to see over these next few weeks is that God is glorified when you live like Jesus while you suffer. God is glorified when you live like Jesus while you suffer. And what Peter, I think, wants to get across really in this entire letter, but mainly in this body, is that God's main purpose for you is to glorify him. And and how does he do that? He takes wicked sinners. That's you, by the way. He takes wicked sinners. He saves them. And then he uses them to shine the light of his glory with their conduct, with their life while they are in suffering. In fact, God's glory shines the brightest when it's the darkest. God is glorified when you live like Jesus during the the darkness of suffering. In fact, when I sleep at night, I like to have it as dark as possible. Anyone else like that? I like to have it pitch black. I don't like any light. And sometimes I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll see a light shining. And it really bothers me. Maybe it's a kid's toy that was left on the ground and it's flashing. Or maybe you have a computer that was, for some reason, the light's flashing on it. And, so, and it seems so bright in the middle of the night, doesn't it? Why does a light like that seem so bright? Because it's the darkest it can be. And that, that's really how it works in our world. When things are the darkest, that's when the, the light of the glorious gospel of Christ through our life shines the brightest. You actually can see this through the book. Let me just walk you through the, the book of 1 Peter, not the whole thing, but just a couple of verses and show you this. Look back in chapter 1, verse 6. There he kind of introduces the problem of trials, that we're to rejoice even when we go through trials and we're suffering. In verse 7, he says, why? It's so that you can have your faith tested. And look at the end of verse 7. That if your faith is tested, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. So Jesus puts trials in your life to test your faith so that you'll glorify God. In fact, this is what he did, the Father did to Jesus. Look at verse 11. The prophets were inquiring when this Messiah, Jesus, would come, and what were they predicting? Look at the end of the verse. The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So there was suffering, and God brought glories to Jesus through that. In fact, look at verse 21. Through him, that's Jesus, you are... Believers, we are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him what? Glory. So God used the suffering of Jesus to bring him glory. In fact, look in chapter 2, verse 12. And we're not going to, this is our text, but I'm not going to read the whole thing. But just notice at the end that God is glorified through our conduct on the day of visitation. And then verse 13, God is glorified through a believer as he submits to the government. Verse 18, as a servant submits to his master. Verse chapter 3, verse 1, as a wife submits to her husband with a Christ-like spirit. Chapter 3, verse 8, the church as they are under persecution. And it goes on. I mean, what you see is God's glory shining through people's conduct. And then look at chapter 4, verse 11, which is really the end of this body of, 
uh, the main body of this letter. Verse 11, the very end of it, chapter 4, verse 11. In order that, in everything, God may be glorified. Through Christ Jesus, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And what's the conclusion to that? Look at verse 16. So if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But what? Let him glorify God in that name. So the question before us then, therefore, today is, how can you glorify God during your time in this world. So let's look at verses 11 and 12. And notice as I go through this, where God's glory is, where your conduct is, and then where there's suffering. So verse 11, 1 Peter 2.11 says, Behold, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will help me be able to be clear about your word. I pray you'll help us all have endurance during this short time as we are out here in the sun. And I pray that God, most importantly, you will be glorified this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In April of 1942, Lieutenant Colonel Jimmy Doolittle led 16 B-25s to attack Tokyo. It was our response to Pearl Harbor. And these uh, B-25 flew across the Pacific Ocean, attacked Tokyo, and then many of them crash-landed into China. Eight of those Doolittle Raiders, as they were called, were captured by the Japanese. And for three years, they faced unimaginable tortures at the hands of the Japanese. They were kept most of the time in solitary confinement, in five-foot-by-five-foot cells so they couldn't even lay down. They were beaten on a regular basis. They were starved to death. Two of those men, one was named Jack or Jake DeShazer. One was called Bob Meter. Well, Jake grew up in a Christian home, but he rejected his faith of his parents, and he was now living a life of unbelief. And then he had here Bob, who actually became a Christian, and he loved the Lord. And he found himself in a very difficult situation where he was obviously being starved to death. After two years, uh, he was 80 pounds and was receiving weekly, or daily, I should say, daily beatings. And at one point, basically Bob realized he was going to die. So he spoke to Jake. And he told Jake, he said, Jake, God's in charge. Trust him. And Jake saw a man who had joy and peace in the midst of suffering. And the next day, Bob died. And as Jake thought about Bob and the joy and peace he had, Jake thought to himself, I want that peace for myself. And actually, interesting enough, he asked God to give him the word of God. Miraculously, he got the scriptures, read it, and became a believer in Jesus Christ. What you see from this Bob was God's glory shining through his life in the midst of suffering. The Bible says, Let your light so shine before men, they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So how do you live like Bob and glorify God with your life? Well, first of all, look at your notes. You can see 
Peter wants us in verse 11 to remember our identity. Remember your identity. You are a beloved foreigner. He says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. The first word of this sentence really describes God's perspective of us as believers. We are beloved. Literally, that means ones who are loved. And I think that Peter loved these believers, but I think what Peter was doing here was reminding them that God loves them. I mean, chapter 2, verse 10, he says that you are now God's people and you have received mercy, which is God's loving kindness. And he says, listen, you're now beloved. You're loved by God. It's an important truth to remember when someone faces suffering. When, when you are rejected by people, when you are, when you are persecuted by people, maybe you're lied about, how do you feel? You feel unloved. You feel lonely. You feel rejected. So here, Peter is coming to them and saying, no, actually, you are loved by God. You belong to him. You belong to him, and actually, that means, therefore, you're a foreigner in this world. Look down in verse 11. He says, he says they are sojourners and exiles. Both these are really synonyms. A sojourner speaks of a, a foreigner, someone who is an alien in a nation in which they live. Exile describes a person who is away from their homeland. homeland. They're living in a culture that is different than their own. So, so there's, they're very similar words. So I think both these words here describe what God, how God wants us to live, and that is as a foreigner in this world. And now why does he put these two words together like this? Well, this is actually pretty much a direct quote from Genesis chapter 23. It's a quote from Abraham. Abraham was in the land of Canaan. Remember, that's not where he was from, but he went there. And as he spoke of himself to the Canaanites, he said, listen, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. And I, and I think it was Justin that read earlier Hebrews chapter 11. And, and that text actually clarifies he's not just talking about Canaan. He was talking about this earth. Like he was a sojourner and a foreigner in this world. In fact, he says this in chapter 11, verse 10 of Hebrews, that, or the Bible says, he was looking to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. What city is that? That's heaven, right? So he was, he was living his life like a foreigner, looking for that city that, that, that God had built. That's heaven. In fact, this is how God wanted his people Israel to think of their lives on this earth. This is how he wanted them to live as well. Listen to Leviticus 25, 23. God told this to Israel. The land, that's the land of Israel, is mine. So who owns the land of Israel? There's a lot of big debate about that today. Who owns the land of Israel? According to this verse, God does, okay? He owns it. Not even the Israelites, in some sense, you could say, own it. He says, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. In other words, he's saying, I own this land. I've put you in this land, but this is not your land. You're, you're just a sojourner. You're just a, a, a stranger. You're a foreigner. You're just passing through. And why was that? Because their true land was a heavenly land. This was just a temporary time in this world for them. That's how God wants us to think. A couple of years ago, my wife and I, Dana, and I went to Indonesia to visit my sister. And so we went to another city that they're not uh, living in. And we decided to go for a walk one night. They had their little kids. And we had Ailey, who was a baby at the time. And we were doing the, the walk around the neighborhood. And, you know, sometimes when you're in a country like that, you can forget 
that you're in a foreign country, you know, if you just kind of isolate yourself and talk to each other and talk about life in America, you forget. But then when you kind of experience the culture, you kind of realize you're not in your own homeland. And I remember we were walking down this road and there was a mosque and over there, pretty much your, your community center is your mosque, the mosques. And so we walked around, there was a mosque and it was about the time for the call to prayer. And, you know, we saw, oh, this is cool. We'll look at a mosque. And oh, there's, there's a guy up there in the imam who had the microphone like this. And the, and the guy turns around and he looks right at us. Of course, we look as Western as you possibly can look, right? A little stroller there with our kids bouncing down the road. And, and he looks at us and stares us down. And my brother-in-law, who, I mean, he lives there. He knows the area, right? Like, if he's scared, we should be scared. And he goes, we got to get out of here now. We're like, oh. and at that moment, you realize... I don't belong here. <laughs> like, this is not my country, right? And there's a sense where when you're in a foreign country, you realize that you don't fit in here. But that's actually how God wants us to think about really any culture in which we are living. There's a sense that all of us Christians should always feel out of place in this world because this is not our world. God has another one for us in the future. And so we should view ourselves as foreigners in this earth, on this earth. Our country has an election coming up. It's a pretty important one, I think. Most people think. I think I've heard pretty much every year for the past, you know, well, since I've been an adult, this is the most important election of our lifetime. <laughs> has anyone ever heard that before? Okay. But it probably is the most important election of our lifetime thus far. So probably the next one will say that again. But I, I think it is to think about our world in which we live. God has given us a gift as a country to be able to have freedom and to be able to participate in it, I mean, that, that is a wonderful gift that we actually can influence the government's decisions by voting. And, I, and if God gives us a gift, we probably should use it, right? And so I do, I do encourage you to make sure you vote. Every believer in here and listening to me, really, you should vote because God has given you that gift and you should take that responsibility. And I think we should vote to preserve life, particularly that of the unborn. We should vote to... Uh, so we can have freedom to worship and to raise our children in the way that we think is best. And this election is an important one. But I think also we need to remember during these kind of times that this country, the United States of America, is not our home. Right? It's a great blessing. And we pray for it, and we should pray for it. I think we should be praying for these churches that are oppressed right now. And, and just in general... Uh, the unrest in our country, pray that God will revive the hearts of, of our country to turn back to him. But we also need to remember this land, this place, our lives are not our own. God has given it to us and we don't own it. And, and, and elections come, elections go, leaders rise, leaders fall, nations come, nations go. Our primary citizenship is a heavenly one. And we must live in light of that. And I'm sure you have these conversations with people that don't live in California. But when I have people that I talk to that don't live in California, they just dog California. You have, you have those conversations? You know, they talk about how bad it is and how terrible. And the truth is, we are on the front lines, I think, of Satan's attack in our world today. We're the front lines. And honestly, we should wear that as a badge of privilege. God is using us in our culture to be able to... to to see people come to Christ, to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and if this world is all there is, if this is all there is, okay, if it's just a, a country, a nation, and freedom, and lands, 
Honestly, we should all quit, move out of California, and go live in Montana, okay? If, that's all, if this is all there is. I mean, honestly, if you only got a couple years left, might as well go to a place and live a nice little life on a little farm somewhere and, and, and just, like, live it out and then die, right? But that's, this isn't all there is. In fact, this isn't our actual utopia here in California or in wherever else. Our utopia is to come, right? So if we live like foreigners, we recognize, well, we don't belong here. We don't belong in anywhere, really. We belong in heaven, and therefore everything I'm doing in my life here, God has placed me in this time, and he's given me the life I have. He's placed me in California. God has placed me for a purpose here, and I should live like a foreigner in this land and realize that God has something special for me. And so I just say that to us because to encourage you, <laughs> right, that you're not living a life that is um, out of the ordinary by living in California. Maybe it's a little out of the ordinary, but it's, it's something that I think we should embrace. And thank God that we get to be in a place that we can, we can tell the gospel to people on the front lines of the spiritual war that's taking place in our country. So how do we glorify God, though, in all this? Well, we remember our identity, but then also, second, identify the enemy and its target. What's the enemy? Who's the enemy? I should say it that way. Who's the enemy? Well, if you live in a hostile uh, government and you live, by the way, if you need to get up and move your chair, feel free to do that. If anyone needs to do that, if you get in the sun. But if you live in a, in a government or if you live in a land that's hostile to you, who do you think the, the enemy is? Well, you, you'd probably think the enemy is those people, the government officials. Like, think about California. Who's our enemy in California? Okay, don't say it out loud because I'm going to give you a different answer than you're going to say. Is it, is it the officials who are saying that we can't meet inside? Are it the mocking Christ, or is it the, those who are mocking Christians online? Are it those who are immoral and degenerate? Are those our enemies? Well, what does it say in this passage here? 1 Peter 2.11. Look at what it says about, our, about those people. Or, sorry, those who are war, at war against us. It says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. So who is the enemy at war against you in your soul? It's actually your sinful desires are at war within you. In order for us to glorify God, we got to recognize the true enemy. And obviously Satan is the one influencing this world and he's influencing those who are unbelieving. But for us, our enemy within us is the passions of our flesh. So he says in verse 11, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Passion speaks of your desires. The flesh is really an adjective that describes these desires as cravings that come from our bodily natures. And flesh doesn't mean our bodies are sinful, okay? Sometimes people can think about that and think, oh, does that mean our bodies are sinful? Well, no, Jesus had a body. He wasn't sinful. It means that our bodies have cravings that desire to be fulfilled. Desire is not bad, right? God created us with desire. We have a desire to eat. That's a good thing. We have the desire to put clothes on. That's a good thing. We have the desire not to be so hot right now. That's a good thing. In fact, if you're getting too hot, get some water. Make sure you're drinking. But what is sinful is when those desires are find fulfillment in what is outside of God's will. So a dad might say, might think to himself, I want my child to obey. Is that a good desire for a father to have? Absolutely. It's actually God's desire for him. But when a dad verbally abuses his child and to force him into obedience by maybe calling him names or belittling him, he's sinning against God. He's actually fulfilling that desire outside of God's will. 
God created us with the desire to eat. But if you fulfill that desire by stealing food or by eating too much, it's one message that many pastors don't preach on right there is gluttony. But, you know, if you, if you do that, actually, you're, you're fulfilling your desires outside of God's will. God created each person to, with a desire for sexual intimacy. But those desires should be fulfilled only within marriage of a man and a woman. So if you f- fulfill those desires outside of God's will, you're following your own lustful passions. I'm not going to have time to go through this because it's getting hot and I desire to be cold <laughs> again. But if you look in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, you can see the contrast of God's will versus our evil or our sinful desires. And Paul talks about this over in Galatians 5. And so you can, there's, there's, there's these desires that we have within us that are at war within us. And you can simply just say it this way, that this is simply a person living for himself, guided by his own heart's desire. So if you live life for yourself, if you say, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do in life, whatever my heart wants to do in life, controlled by your sinful desires, listen, you will live a very painful life in this world, but also in the one to come because God promises that the wages of our sin is death. Notice the target of these sinful desires. It's our soul. The verb there, wage war, is a present tense. And so this is a war against our soul that never stops. It's every day. It's all day long. It's all throughout our day. We have a war against our soul. And a war is something that has the intent of destroying. Think about a war. It's a campaign that has as its goal to break things, to cause chaos for the enemy, and the hopes to defeat that enemy. And that's really what our sinful desires are doing against our soul. It's causing chaos. It's destabilizing us. Um, I think about, hopefully you don't watch too much news, but if you do, you see something that's happening even in our cities. You see these cities who are going, going into chaos, right? You could even say there's a war that's taking place in, with some of these, in some of these cities where there's looting, there's rioting, there's sometimes there's killing. And some people have it as their desire, sinful desire, to destabilize and cause chaos so they can destroy order and authority in those cities. And those kind of wars and the wars that are happening around the world, they're terrible and they're really bad. But I think it's good for us to remember that the war that destroys your soul are not taking place in those cities. It's taking place in your own sinful passions. And here he's talking to believers. And do you realize, Christian, that there's a war that takes place in your heart every day? And that's why we need someone to rescue us from our sin and our sinful passions. And who is that that rescues us? Who's the rescuer? Who's the savior? Jesus Christ, Galatians 5.24. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Christ is the only one who can save your soul, forgive your sins, and give you daily victory over your sinful craving. And so if you haven't come to Christ, I hope you will understand what that means and you'll turn to him today. And for Christians, we, God calls us not to fulfill our sinful desires, to abstain from that and follow Christ by faith. And notice the, the daily objectives. This is our third point. How do we glorify God in the world? And this is our last point, by the way. We fulfill our daily objectives. Which first means we abstain from sinful desires. And then second, we keep our conduct good 
while we suffer. Look at verse 12. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The participle verb there, keep, is a present tense, and it represents the opposite of fulfilling your sinful desires. So the idea here is that, that, that the sinful desires wage, wage war against your soul on a constant basis. You desire to fulfill those desires, but instead you should fulfill your daily objective, and that is to have conduct that is honorable, or, or actually the word honorable can be translated as good. In fact, if you have an ESV, it says honorable. If you have another translation, it might say good. In fact, look at the, um, look at the end of verse 12 where he says, that they may see your good deeds. That word good and the word honorable are actually the same Greek words. And this idea of good here is uh, a word that describes the external beauty of someone's conduct. It describes the highest and most noble type of conduct. It's kind of like the conduct of maybe a king or a prince who, who would maybe, as, as a leader of their country, take care of the poor. And it's the most noble the highest form of good, the most profound and loveliest good possible. Now, who does this describe? If you think about that, you think about the most noble and most wonderful good possible, who does that describe? That's Jesus Christ. And again, I don't have time to go through and, and show you all this, but if you read through verses 13 all the way down to chapter 4, verse 11, notice how many times it talks about our conduct in the government, with servants, wives, husbands, Notice also how it speaks of Jesus being our example. Notice how many times the word good is used. It's a different, actually, Greek word than the good word good here. But Jesus is always presented as our example to follow. And so we're to keep our conduct, verse 12 of chapter 2, keep our conduct among the Gentiles. Gentiles is the same word as we saw in the earlier verses, two verses earlier, where it talks about nations. It's the word ethnos. So it just speaks of this, this um, group of people who are unbelieving. So we're to keep our conduct among this unbelieving world good so that when they speak against you as evil doers, they may see your good deeds. So notice how we are to do good even in the midst of suffering. When we're accused of doing something that we have not done or when people label us or try to cancel us or whatever. They kind of live in a canceled culture. That's actually not a new thing for Christianity. Christianity for, for centuries has been spoken of as, as in ways that are actually demeaning on them and actually not even true. Christians at one time were called atheists because they weren't polytheistic. And so they believe if you don't believe in a lot of gods, then you must not believe in God. They were called unpatriotic under the Roman Empire because they didn't worship the emperor. They were accused of insurrection because they taught slaves that they, were, they had dignity in the eyes of God. They were actually accused of being cannibals at one time because they would take babies who were left out to die, kind of like an early form of abortion. They would take those babies into their homes and raise them as their own children. And so people could understand why they would do that. You know, why would you take an abandoned baby? You must be eating them at home, you know? So they're accused of being cannibals. The point is, this is actually how it works in the world. Many times Christians do good things, and they're accused, of, therefore, of doing bad things. So how should you respond when you have those false accusations against you? Well, what does he say in verse 12? Keep your conduct 
among the unsaved, honorable, good, even when they speak against you, that they may see your good deeds. I saw a video of uh, a lady who was sitting at a cafe, and a bunch of protesters came around here. They were, had their fists in the air. You might have seen this. They had their fists in the air, and they were chanting, no justice, no peace. If we don't get in, if we don't get it, shut it down. They just kept chanting over and over, and this lady was sitting there, and all these people are towering above her, and one person, and she was refusing to stand up and put her fist up and do that, and one person, one person asked this lady and really screamed at her, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? And I thought, how would I respond if that was me sitting there? You know, what would, what would you be tempted? How would your, if you could say this way, your fleshly desires be tempted to respond in that moment? Everyone's in your face. They're yelling at you, you know, trying to force you to do something. And they say, are you a Christian? And honestly, what would you feel like doing at that moment? What does God call us? How do we glorify God in our lives? What does he say? Keep doing good. Keep your conduct honorable. Keep your conduct good. So how do we glorify God? Remember your identity. Identify the enemy, and that's our own sinful desires that war, war against our soul. Fulfill your daily objectives. That means we keep our conduct good while we suffer. And notice the purpose of this. Look at verse 12. So that, so that they may see your good deeds. And what's the end of the verse say? And glorify God in the day of visitation. The big question that expositors ask in verse 12 that because of the heat, I don't have time to go into this morning. But the big question is, what is the day of visitation? It could really be one of three things. It could be either the day a person becomes a believer. So the idea is they, they see someone's good works. They're opposing the gospel. They see someone's good works. They get saved. And so God visits them with salvation. In fact, in the Old Testament, that's how this word, day of visitation, was used. God visiting them with salvation, with blessing. Some people see it, and actually, if you look in chapter 3, verse 1, you can see that there, right? The wife has this um, pure conduct, and it causes her husband to see it. And not in all situations, but in some situations, he sees that, and therefore, he trusts in Christ, and God visits him with salvation. Some see it as the day that a person... Uh, meets Christ. So a person, again, is opposing the gospel. They see someone's good works. They get saved. And then when they see Christ, they glorify God. They see, they remember the person's good works, and they glorify God for what God did in their life. And then the third possibility is that it could speak of the day of judgment. In fact, this is also how the day of visitation is used in the Old Testament. It's used in both ways. Blessing, God visiting for blessing, God visiting for judgment. In this kind of idea, this scenario, it's the idea is that there's a hostile group of people to the gospel. They see your good works, but they continue to reject and malign you. And then on the day of judgment, they stand before Jesus Christ, and they recognize the good works that the church did, and they recognize that Jesus is Lord, and they glorify God by saying that he is Lord. And this reminds you of Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. It says, at the name of Jesus, every knee... Those who even oppose Christ and don't receive Christ, they will bow before him and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So even in judgment, because after that they will, are therefore cast out of God's presence into eternal judgment, even in that God is glorified. So the question is, which one is it? And it's somewhat difficult. It's not really specific here. In fact, in the last one, the third one with judgment, actually I think... You see chapters 2, 3, and 4, you actually see 
this idea that, um, that the majority of those who hear, see the good works don't come to faith in Christ. And so what's the answer? Because you're all saying, give us the answer, Pastor Ben. We don't really care. Maybe you don't. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. You care. Okay. Well, I think you could put number one and two together, okay? If when someone has received, received salvation, that they glorify God that day. When they see Christ, they'll glorify God. So I don't really know if the distinction on the day that that happens is, is a problem. So I think you can probably say that a person could see someone's good works, and they can receive Christ. They hear the gospel, they receive Christ, and they glorify God. And then the third one, I think, actually is legitimate, too. And I think, I think in fact, that Peter, the fact that Peter is not clear about what this actual day is, is it a day of blessing? Is it a day of judgment? You know, some commentators, commentators are all over the place on this uh, type of thing. And actually, I kind of come, maybe, if you want to say, to the middle ground. Maybe it's the cop-out. I don't know. But I think you could take it probably either way. I think there are times when we, someone sees your good works, and they hear the gospel, and they therefore come to Christ, and God is glorified. And God visits them with salvation and blessing. And I think there are times, and this is actually probably the majority of the time, when people hear the gospel and they see your good works and they reject Christ, but they, God will still be glorified. No matter what, whether it be God visiting them with blessing or God visiting them with judgment, God will be glorified. The, 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 the result of God's glory is left up to him. Our faithfulness to turn from our sin and faith turn to Jesus Christ and follow him with good conduct is up to us. So the fruit of God's glory is up to him and the faith to follow him is up to us. John Wesley wrote this, Do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can in all the places you can at all the times you can to all the people you can as long as you can. I think it's a pretty good motto to life, if you can remember it. Do good all the time you can. Let me just finish with a story. Jake DeShazer, as I told you, was in that prison. He saw Bob's testimony of the gospel, and he received a Bible, Jake did, and he began to read it. He actually read through the Bible, I think it was twice, maybe more than that, but at least twice because he had nothing else to do in that solitary confinement. started memorizing verses, but he started thinking about what the Bible teaches, and think about what his mom taught him when he was growing up, and thought about the faith that was passed on to him, but he never received. And he read, in the second time of reading through the scriptures, he read Romans 10, 9. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And really, at that moment, Jake recognized his sin. You see, he hated the Japanese. I mean, every time they came into one of his cells, one of the cells of the men or his cell, and beat him, he cursed them, sometimes under his breath because he didn't want to get beat more. He hated them. But he recognized that his hate and his own sin of his heart was an offense to God. And he confessed that to God, and he believed in Jesus Christ. And he says at that moment, he says, a great joy overcame my soul. He felt the forgiveness of God. He, he recognized the forgiveness of God and felt even the peace that came from that. And from that day on, Jake said, Lord, I want to forgive and to love like Bob did and like Jesus did. And so that's what he began to do. The first time he met his guard again, he came by. He said, good morning to his guard. And every time he met his guard, he tried to say something kind to him and do something kind for him. One time his guard was, was bowing his head. And, and so he leaned over to his guard and he said to him, 
I said, what are you thinking about right now? And at that point, he learned Japanese. I said, what are you thinking about right now? And he says, I'm thinking about my mom. And so Jake then decided to say, I'll pray for your mom and prayed for his mom. And he, he decided to show love to this, these people. And what happened through Jake's life is actually God used his life and his story to see thousands of Japanese people come to Christ. He went back as a missionary into Japan, and God used his life in a great way. The light of Bob and the light of, of Jake shone brightly. God's glory shone as they lived like Jesus Christ, even in the midst of suffering. I don't know what suffering you're going through right now. Honestly, I don't know what suffering we're going to take. It's going to take place in our church and our country over the next couple of years. But I do know this, that God's glory shines the brightest when it's the darkest. And now is the time for us as Christians to shine. And that means that our conduct, that means our life for Christ should shine brightly as we do good. We continue to do good for the glory of God. If you're not a believer and you've never come to Christ, I hope you see the glory of Jesus Christ and really the, the magnificence of his splendor and his holiness and recognize that you deserve judgment before God. And my prayer for you is that you would turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ. And for us believers, let me encourage you this morning to surrender your heart again to, Lord, to the Lord. Think about the suffering you're going through and ask God to do this in your life. Help you to be like Christ in your suffering for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful that even in the heat, we're able to gather. And I pray you'll keep everyone safe here. I pray you'll use this text, though, and God, apply it, use it to our, in our life. I pray that we will live for the glory of you. And I pray that Jesus Christ, by your spirit, you'll conform us to your image. Help us to do good. Sometimes it's very difficult when people come against us. It's very difficult when we see what's happening in our country. It's very difficult when we're suffering. But your grace is sufficient. Your Holy Spirit is powerful. So we surrender our lives to you and ask God, please do this in our life. May we live in obedience to Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.